preparation for today's message, please open to Acts 14. We'll be reading 1 through 23. Now at Iconium, they entered together into Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way with great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright to your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying, Laconian, the gods have come down to us and liked us of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of nature like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seeds and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained people from offering sacrifice to him. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and had persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra in Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to them the Lord to whom they had believed. One of the most incredible times in our at least as long as I've been alive, happened after 2001, the greatest tragedy in American history, the attacks in September 11, 2001. And I remember after that time, there was this incredible sense of oneness and unity, that no matter who we were or what our perspective was, where we came from, we were all Americans and we were united against a common enemy. There was a speech that then-President Bush gave on uh, September 20th, 2001, to Congress. And in that Congress, he kinda, that speech, he kind of rallied the troops together and said how we're going to defeat these terrorists and how we need to come together to fight these terrorists. And after that, he had the highest approval rating of any president at any time ever in American history. And it wasn't because people were so excited about the Republican agenda, it was because he was rallying the troops and says, we're going to bring these people to justice. And who could argue with that? 
Who could argue with that? Everybody came together, and I watched part of that speech this week, and people from both sides were standing up cheering on their feet to support the president because of this common enemy that we had. Things have changed a little bit since then. We don't have that sense of unity anymore. This past week, uh, you might have heard the story, but Ellen DeGeneres, uh, openly homosexual woman, was at a football game with George W. Bush, conservative Republican president. And wouldn't you believe people got all upset about that, that she was sitting next to a Republican president. And she gave a brilliant response, by the way, so check that out if you want to. But how far have we come in our culture that two people who disagree can no longer sit next to each other at a football game? It's an incredible uh, journey that we've gone through. A few weeks ago, uh, Drew Brees, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, was on, featured on this video from Focus on the Family. And the video was about a minute long, and in that video, he simply encouraged students who are Christians to bring their Bible to school for Bring the Bible to School Day. And of course, people got all upset about that, saying that he was supporting a supposed anti-homosexual organization, which, of course, wasn't true at all. We've come a long way in our culture, and we live in a very fractured and, fractured and divided culture. And I wish I could say it's just our culture in general, but it's also our churches. It seems like conflict has become the tradition or the go-to in our churches. There's a young rabbi once who took over this synagogue, and he had a really hard time because there was this conflict between people, because some people, they would stand when the prayers were being read, and other people would sit when the prayers were being read. And they would argue, and they would yell at each other across the aisle, and each one claimed that their tradition was the true tradition. So he tried everything that he could to fix this issue, couldn't fix it. Finally, exasperated, he went and found the founder of the synagogue, who was 99 years old, in a nursing home. And he told him what had happened. He said, I want to know what the true tradition is. And he said, is the tradition to stand? The old rabbi said, no. Is the tradition then to sit? The rabbi said, no. And the, the young rabbi responded, what we have is complete chaos. Half the people stand and shout, the other half sit and scream. Ah, said the old rabbi, that was the tradition. <laughs> it seems like throughout church history, that's been the tradition. Since the time of Paul and the apostles, there have been people who come into the church who attempt to lead believers astray. The 1054 uh, A.D., we saw the first major split in the church when the Eastern Church separated from uh, the Western Church. So we had the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. Then a little bit later, 16th century, Martin Luther and the Reformers broke off from the Roman Catholic Church and from that span, uh, hundreds and thousands of different denominations and different flavors of Christianity so that today there are literally thousands. In 2001, the World Christian Encyclopedia counted 33,830 denominations, and the number today is probably a lot higher. But it's not just denominations. It's also things that happen within the churches. 
The 14,000 member uh, congregation Faith Communities Today study in 2015 found that 75% of congregations have experienced conflict in the past, 20% at any one time. They found 60% of congregations had some kind of conflict during the past five years. 2001 Hartford Institute study discovered 79% of people or congregations had a conflict in the past. University's 2006-2007 National Congregation Study found that 9% of churches had a conflict that was so severe that it caused a pastor or religious leader to leave the church. Author and pastor Francis Chan says this, real love, unity, and blessing were supposed to be found in the church. Many are having a hard time finding that, so they're setting off on their own. They said that the world would see the supernatural unity and love that we share in the church and believe in him through that, but we're not experiencing it. We've given up on it. We no longer believe it's possible. Ladies and gentlemen, this cannot be. Something needs to change. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul and Barnabas come to a city called Iconium, and as they preach the gospel there, they see an incredible response. We see this unity as Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and a miraculous thing is happening. And yet the, tell, the text tells us that there were some uh, unbelieving Jews who come in and attempt to split apart the church. And the first thing that they do is they poison the minds of the believers. It says in the text that they excited or stirred up the people in the church, and literally it says in the ESV translation that they poisoned the minds of the people. We don't know exactly what the nature of these lies were, but they clearly told people that Paul and Barnabas were not of God. This is often how church conflict or church splits start. Something amazing happens, God works, God's spirit is present, and then there are certain individuals who are troublemakers come in and try to say, is this really of God? And they poison the mind of believers. Uh, a few years ago, I went to a conference in Atlanta uh, for Christian college students and young adults called the Passion Conference. And on this one particular night, uh, the person who was speaking gave an invitation uh, gospel message, and I was really encouraged because there were a number of people who gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And, and I remember leaving that place just in this, in the good place, excited about what God had done, and all these young people who had devoted their lives to Christ. But on the way back to my hotel, I encountered this man who was on the street corner, and he was yelling that the passion movement was not of God used lights and fog and things of this world, and basically that this movement was of the devil. And I remember being so angry that I just wanted to go over and punch this guy in the nose. Because here we are, God has moved people from darkness into light and been transformed by Jesus, and this person is trying to poison the mind of young people saying, this is not of God. You need to reject this. It's trying to sow division and discord. wonder what they said about Paul. 
I wonder if they said, well, you know, you know, Paul, he used to persecute the believers. I don't know that you could trust him. I don't know that you can really believe in what he says. Who knows? He might start persecuting Christians again. We don't know the nature of what they said. How does this happen in churches? I think it happens often on three different levels. The first level it happens on is the level of personal attacks. Person raises their hands in worship. Another person goes to you know another congregation member and says, "Person who is raising his hands, I don't think they're a very good person. I think they have an addiction, and I don't know if they should really." You know that person who just started coming to the church? I don't know if they're such a good character. I don't know that we can trust them. You know the pastor or the worship leader? I think, I, I think they might have sin in their life. Do you think? Do you, I mean, is that surprising that a worship leader or a pastor be a human so, but certain troublemakers, they come into the church and try to sow division by attacking people's motives or sincerity even when there's no good reason to do so. Another way that this can happen is at the level of personal preferences where we want things a certain way. You know, for example, say a church changes their carpets, you know, and this person comes in, they don't like the color of the carpet, and so they go to another member and say, see this carpet? A little bit ugly, isn't it? And the other person says, well, yeah, it's, I guess, uh, yeah, it's all right. And they go to another person, hey, I've heard talk around, people are saying this carpet isn't very good. What do you think about it? It's pretty ugly, isn't it? I don't know, I, I guess. Then they go to the next person, see this carpet? How much, how much do you think this carpet cost? Don't you think it was sinful that they spent all this money on this carpet? And, and they go around trying to sow division, and it's like, dude, this is a carpet. If you don't like it, look at the ceiling. It's not that big of a deal. It's not something that's worth dividing over. It's a personal preference. But sometimes we get caught up in those things, and most church splits or conflicts, they're over things like that. Usually it's not over big theological issues the sufficiency of Jesus or faith in Jesus or something like that. It's over carpet. So personal preferences. And then finally, we see personal opinions. I don't know if you've met people like this, but there are certain people who are kind of zealots and trying to convince people that their perspective on theology is correct. Perspective on secondary issues like when or how Jesus is going to return and what his millennial kingdom is going to look like. I remember in seminary, I was having a discussion after uh, a chapel uh, with another gentleman, and we were talking about the message and kind of processing it. And I remember this individual, he was concerned about my spiritual health and about me being a pastor because I wasn't a five-point Calvinist. And I was thinking, like, is this really what's most important, that I be a five-point Calvinist? But to him, it was... He had to convince me about it. it was so serious and so I've, I know of churches that have split apart because one person is a premillennial and one's a millennial. Most of think to ourselves, I don't even know what a millennial is. I thought a millennial was like a young person. Thought all we were supposed to do is follow after Jesus and follow his word. 
I think that's true. We lose sight of that. These secondary issues, it's, it's good to know about them. It's good to have an opinion. But we need to try to convert other people to our opinion. So that is another way that churches can split apart when they, people have personal opinions that they want to make the law of God. So personal attacks, personal preferences, personal beliefs. And the sad truth is, in this passage, and often when church splits happen, it's usually started by people who should know better. It's usually not a person who's an unbeliever who just starts these things. And in this passage, you'd expect it if it was the Gentiles, but it was Jewish people, people who had the law, people who had the word of God. They were the ones that were causing this. And in the church, it's the same way oftentimes. It's usually not a new believer or even an unbeliever who starts these kind of divisions. Oftentimes, it's the person who's been following after Jesus for 20 years. Person who reads his or her Bible every day person who maybe even teaches a class, these are the people that often start these divisions. When this poisoning is successful, we see that it leads to division. It says in verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with, with the apostles. When people become divided, they take sides. They take up No longer is work this out. No longer is it, let's do this together. It's, I have my position, you have your position, and I'm going to see how, I can, how much I can defend my position and convert you to my position. You take up sides, you defend your positions. This happened in the early church, especially in the church at Corinth. One, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? E. Stanley Jones said this, Talk about what you believe, and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you have unity. Of course, that's not to say we shouldn't discuss what we believe in. Uh, in seminary, I had the privilege of going to two different seminaries. The one was a denominational seminary, and the other was an uh, interdenominational seminary. I was at the, the second one longer, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And, of course, there's advantages and disadvantages of each type of seminary, and I, I don't want to talk bad about either one. But the difference between the denominational and an interdenominational seminary is that in a denominational seminary, they kind of teach you what the denomination believes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you get mainly one perspective or one worldview. At Gordon-Conwell, it was interesting. It was interdenominational. So I had a really good friend who loved Jesus who was an Anglican. I had a really good friend who loved Jesus who was a Presbyterian. I had a friend who was from the Assembly of God. I had a professor who loved Jesus, a great person who was a Seventh-day Adventist. I didn't even know what that meant. I still don't really know what that means. I had a professor who loved Jesus from a congregational church. 
And I met with all these different people, and the thing that was really interesting is I don't remember any heated arguments or debate. I mean, people discussed these issues, but for the most part, like trying to get other people to join their denomination or think the same way that they did. Everybody believed and loved Jesus, loved God's Word, believed in God's Word, and that was enough. We came to Jesus, we came to God's Word together, and it was okay that we held differences of opinion on a multitude of these issues that are secondary issues. And of course, it was sometimes it was a little bit weird. You go to chapel and you have 85 different denominations represented, so you know, you have just kind of the most mellow, least offensive, kind of bland service imaginable. That was a little bit weird. But everybody got along because everybody loved Jesus. Everybody loved God's Word. So the problem is not that our, we have differences of opinion. The problem is when we consider those differences as being integral. The problem is when we demonize people who hold different opinions than we do. We consider them to be less spiritual less in touch with God, that we need to convert them to our viewpoint. So those are the first two stages that lead to church division or church splits, poisoning, dividing, and then the third step, if it gets there, and of course any church could turn back at any point, but the third step is unifying. And of course, this is the last step, and in this step, both parties become more unified not in doing good, but doing evil. You see, a church that's divided often becomes a church that's united in doing evil. church that's divided often becomes a church that's united in doing evil. Look at what the text tells us in verse 5. It tells us that both Jews and Gentiles, with their rulers together, unite to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They drive the apostles of God out of the city together. And this is the last stage in church, in church conflict where there's two different sides and they are unified together in fighting the other side. Unified in doing their own purposes rather than the will of God. What if we approach this differently? What if we realize that there is indeed a battle, but the battle is not against the believer next door? The battle is not against the church down the street. The battle is against the forces and principalities of darkness. There's a popular YouTube video, and it's called The Battle at Kruger. And I was going to show it here, but it's, kind of, it's like eight and a half minutes long, and it's, the quality is very poor, but... It, what happens in this video is quite amazing. There's these three water buffalo that are by the watering hole, and four lions come and pounce upon them. And the buffalo, it's a mom, a dad, and a baby. And they scatter, but the baby can't go away. And so these four lions get the baby. And they're getting ready for lunch, getting ready to on this little baby. And mean and Meantime, there's some crocodiles in the water nearby, and they want a piece of it too. So they come, come up, and they're going to try to get, um, get this calf as well. But then an incredible thing happens. You see in the video that about 100 or more water buffalo 
all of a sudden start to form this group. And slowly they start to surround these lions. And then one of the bigger bulls comes and attacks the lion, charging at him, throws the lion, one of the lions in the air. And one after the other, these bigger bulls come and charge after these lions. For a while, the lions didn't pay any attention. They thought, this, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. They're just getting ready to enjoy their lunch. But then after the second one got gored and thrown away and chased out of the, the area, the other ones dispersed. And the baby was able to go back to his herd. Four lions, the king of, kings of the jungle. They'd be no, they, they, they would have no competition with one water buffalo. They'd eat it just in a moment. But a hundred water buffalo with their horns locked together, working in unity to defeat them, it was unstoppable. It's interesting. Um, they talked to an animal biologist after this, and they talked about how oftentimes these water buffaloes will form little individual groups, and these groups are uh, kind of fight against other groups. They're, they don't usually work together. But this bi biologist said this, if a youngster is threatened, both the harem males and the bachelor males, which usually fight with one another, will get together to try to rescue it. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an enemy who wants to devour us. We have an enemy who wants us to spend time arguing and bickering, wasting the precious time that God has given us. But we can't afford to do that. We can't afford divisions because the world needs the church. Jesus needs his church to be united. A church that's divided often becomes a church that's united in doing evil. But the good news is a church that's united often becomes a church that's unstoppable and doing good. When we come together as the body of Christ, there's nothing that can stop us. The gates of hell cannot stand against this church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for calling us out of darkness and bringing us into a family, a community of faith. We thank you for allowing us to be your plan to reach the world with the gospel. Lord, we know that we can't do that on our own. We know that the enemy is strong, that the darkness is vast. And in and of ourselves, we will fall against the enemy. But we know with your strength, with your power, with all of us standing together, with arms linked together, there's nothing that can stop us that you've promised that the gates of hell cannot stand against your church. Lord, I pray that as a church, as a local body here, that we would be united, that we would focus on the things that matter, that we wouldn't be caught up in the things of this world and resort to personal attacks or preferences or opinions, but that we'd be focused on your word. 
and doing whatever we can to reach men, women, and children around us with the gospel. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Give us the strength to be unified today. In Christ's name I pray.